right. You'll hear the word of God from a selection of passages from 2 Kings, following the pattern of sinful kings that seceded good kings of Judah. 2 Kings chapter 15, starting with verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, son of Ramelah, king of Israel, Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord. As for the other events of Jotham's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramelah, against Judah. Jotham rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David, the city of his father. And Ahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, son of Ramelah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem sixteen years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. And now to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 21. Hezekiah rested with his ancestors, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I've commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him, and he has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end, besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As for the other events in Manasseh's reign and all he did, including the sin he committed, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? And now lastly, 2 Kings chapter 23, starting with verse 30. Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. 
And the people of the land took Johaz, son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Hamatol, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. This is the word of the Lord. That's some cheery reading, huh? Waypoint Church, it's so good to be with you this morning. Glad you're here today. Glad you braved the cold weather to be here. There's something so beautiful and sacred about the family of God gathered together in worship. I love the fact that we get to do it every Sunday, and I love the choir leading us this morning. That was good. I'm just saying, I love being in choir. I was in choir when I was in youth group age. It was fun. I wasn't any good, but I sang with all my heart. Guys, for some of you, if you're here for the first time and you're like, what is this guy going to talk about? If you're here and you're like, what was that that was just read? That was the book of 2 Kings. And we're in a series right now as a church. We're in a series of books of 1 and 2 Kings, kind of what we call, some people have often called the history books of the Bible. And you just heard uh, stories read of some kind of harder kings stories. These are typically sermons that are not often preached or topics that are not often preached on or scripture that's not often preached on in churches. Typically the... They, all, most pastors like to stick with like the epistles. It's a lot easier, just to be honest. And I'm not saying that we're, we're any better. I'm just saying we're a little more hard-hearted, hard-headed. We like to just you know, preach hard texts. Now, in all seriousness, if you're new to Waypoint Church, the reason we preach through texts like this is that we believe in the whole counsel of Scripture. We believe the Old Testament and the New Testament tell the story of an amazing God and an incredible plan of rescue. And so we want the whole counsel of Scripture to inform who we are and make, make up what we know about who this God is. So you'll see us preaching from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. You'll see us often preaching through whole books. That's typically what we do. We go through whole books, often multiple books in a series of time. Sometimes we'll dive into a short piece of text. Yeah, and we'll dive really deep into a little bit of text. And sometimes we'll dive into like large chunks of text and kind of give you more of an overview. So in this section, this today, we're talking about the book of First and Second Kings, and specifically, we're talking about um, we're talking about the bad kings. We're talking about the bad kings that occurred. So, one of the common things you probably heard is they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, last week, Ben did a great job preaching on the good kings. Where's Ben at? He's over there. Good job, Ben. <laughs> ben this is Ben's our pastoral intern. In case you were like, who's Ben? <laughs> Ben, he did a wonderful job last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to it on YouTube. He did a great job talking about the good kings. And today, we're going to dive into and talk about the bad kings and what we can learn. I believe that this is actually um, more of the purpose that we look into the book of First and Second Kings. The purpose of the author, it wasn't to give you a history lesson, a biography of each and every king. That wasn't his purpose. He see over and over again, he says, is it not written about this king in the book of the chronicles or the annals about this, this so-and-so person. I believe the author was intentionally repetitive in describing the bad kings because the point he was making was not a historical document. He was not writing a biography or a chronicle. Instead, it was theological. The author, in his attempt, was giving a reason for the exile, but also remembering the promises of God and pointing with hope towards a true and better king coming. If you remember a few weeks back, I preached a sermon, and I said, guys, picture yourself by the rivers of Babylon. You guys remember that? And all of you guys are like, I've never heard that song before. Shame on you. But I said, picture yourselves by the rivers of Babylon when you're in exile. Your, your home country, your nation, your city, your place of worship, your identity as a people has been conquered and destroyed, and you've been set off as an exile into, into the, the nation-state empire of Babylon, and you're sitting by the river, and you're talking to your children. And you tell them the story, guys, you kids, you guys are Israelites. That's your identity. This is who you are. And as you're teaching them their identity, teaching them the story of their good God, you're teaching them the story of who they are, what makes up who they are, the question that has to be asked by these kids are, then why are we here, Dad? If that's who we are, if our God is faithful, if our God is good, if we have a God of promise and he, he's chosen us to be a, a holy set-apart nation, why are we in exile? Why was Jerusalem conquered? And so this guy, this chronicler, this, this, this person who's writing First and Second Kings is giving the reason for it. 
He's saying, look, remember in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, don't do these things. Remember the law and the covenant and the promise our people made with God. It said, don't do these things. But here's what happened. Over and over and over again, our kings did these terrible things. So why are we in exile? Because we did wrong things. Our kings and our people messed up, made bad decisions. That's why we're in exile. But... There is so much hope for us. Because while we're in exile, we have a God who still knows us and loves us and is preparing a right king, the king that we need, and he will come one day. The hope was that the true king was coming, the better king, the true king in the line of David, the king we were made for and meant for. So that's where the story, that's the author's intent behind this book is to express to this child why are we in exile and where there is a better king coming. And so Ben last week shared about the good kings of Israel. He shared some of the attributes that they had that led to them doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But here's the reality, the sad reality, is that the majority of the kings, nearly all the kings of Judah, and every single one, 100% of the kings of Israel, did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. So let me give you an illustration of that. Basically, that's not even a good illustration. I don't know why I said that. 100%, 100% of all the kings in the north, all the kings of Israel, their identifying factor was they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 100%. But out of Judah, there were a few, a very small few, and Ben spoke about them, a few good ones, one of them being Josiah. And I just mentioned that because it's my son's name, so I just want to say that was, it's a cool name. I mean, that's, you know, got to choose a good name for my son, Josiah. But um, I actually wanted, true story, I wanted to name my son Melchizedek. I've always wanted to name my son, even before, right? You guys know this. I always wanted to name my son Melchizedek. I wanted to call him Melky for short. My wife said no. I fought hard on that one, too. She said if we get a dog, I could name him Melky, you know, Melchizedek. <laughs> but she knows I don't want a dog. See? She's so sneaky. But that was, yeah, a random point. <laughs> So today we're focusing on the bad ones and what made them bad. How do we know who are the bad ones? When we read this text here, we see how many of these kings did what was bad, what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I want to stop right here for a moment. The most important factor of what determines what is good and evil, right and wrong, is the eyes of the Lord. I feel like I need to say that very clearly right now. Because we live in an age of relativism and the concept of relativism oftentimes makes sense. It makes sense for some people that the king might not have done bad things. I mean, if I was a professional idol maker back in the day, these kings were all right with me. I'm like, ooh, I'm making some bank. They want me to make some more idols. Yes, these kings are great. They did what was right in the eyes of Lawrence. Don't take that. That's not seriously what I'm saying. I'm saying if I was an idol maker. You guys with me so far? These kings were awesome. We live in an age where they're taking that concept of relatives and may try to make it a universal concept. If it's right for you, then it's right for me. Be tr- just, just be as long as you're true to yourself or true to what is right for you. And this kind of relativism makes us not know what is universally. Is there a right and a wrong? Is there a, a true and a false? Is there a reference point for what is good, just, or right? But the Bible is very clear. Evil is determined in light of God. He's the standard and the judge. He's a sort of right and just, and praise God for that, because if there wasn't any true standard, then there is no such thing as true justice for the oppressed. There's no true peace and beauty. There's no true right, and my soul and my heart does not resonate with that. My soul my heart knows deep down that certain things are wrong and certain things are right. It longs, it yearns for justice and the wrong things of this world to be made right. Do you hear what I'm saying? In the eyes of the Lord is what it says, is that evil was done. Guys, there is a true source of beauty, a true source of justice, a true source of right. And his name is God. So that we can know what is true, we can know what is just, we can know what is good because we know God. And for those of us who know God, then we know what justice looks like. So we fight for justice for the oppressed. Because we know who God is, we know what beauty and good and righteousness looks like. So we live for those things. Apart from him, how can we know? 
How can there be a standard that applies to all human beings? But because human beings were made in the image of this good, good God, we can know. Make sense? Just want to share that little quick tidbit there. Let's go back to these kings. These kings made altars to Baal, and they made Asherah poles. They, they worshipped in the high places. They worshipped Canaanite gods. They forsaken their God, the God of Israel, the God who rescued, the God who took them out of slavery, brought them through the wilderness. They forsaken that God over and over and over again. And I just can't help but ask, why? Right? I mean, what's wrong with you, right? It feels similar to when I read about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And they keep making these bad choices, and they're complaining, and they're muttering, and they're grumbling. And you're reading this, you're seriously, when I read that wilderness story, I'm like, what's wrong with you people? I want to shake them. and say, stop grumbling, you were slaves. What are you doing? He set you free. How can you turn away from this God? Why do you keep on making these decisions? Why do you keep going back to idol worship? What's wrong with you? The God that, you know the God that rescues you. You have a God who preserves, preserves you over and over again. You see this in the wilderness. Then again, you see it in Judges. And again, here. A same theme over and over again. The Israelites keep on making poor decisions and forsaking God. They're worshiping idols. And they're worshiping things and false religions. Why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? And I just want to stop and just be like, seriously, what's wrong with you people? But there's so much for us to learn. There's so much for us to glean out of this. See, what's happening is these people are losing their first love because they're being tempted and falling in love with something else. God warned them of this. As they were entering into this foreign land, God told them not to be like the culture, not to give it to the beliefs around them because he knew how hard it was going to be. This morning, I'm going to share three reasons why idol worship was so tempting for the Israelites and why the worship and giving in to the worship of the Canaanite religion around them was so tempting to them. And see that maybe those three points could also relate to us. First point, it's tempting because the religions of the area offered fleshly pleasures. Two, second point, it's tempting because it was fear-based. The local religions covered their fears and their anxieties. And then three, third point, it was tempting because of the desire to fit into the culture around them. These three things, fleshy pleasures, fear, and desire to fit in, were the major temptations offered by the religions around them. And it's so interesting when I make these three points, because um, I believe these three reasons are also big for us. They relate to what we're going through. So let's talk about this really quick. Let's look at this text. The incredible story that was read in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 20, King Hezekiah, he's this awesome king that Ben mentioned last week. He's this incredible king that did so much of what was right in the eyes of the Lord. As a matter of fact, he, he did well. God provided protection. God rescued them. God fought some battles for him. And it was wonderful. Things were going great. He was doing a great job of being a great king. He's one of the few kings that did a great job. But literally right after him, his son Manasseh succeeds him. And in chapter 21, we saw it read earlier, but I'll read it again. It says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord has driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem, I'll put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. My goodness. Right after Hezekiah, this incredible king that did so much and God provided in so incredible ways, right after this comes King Manasseh and he does such evil. Let's look at why. The first reason I mentioned was because the worship of the local religions, these practices revolved around fleshly pleasures. They included revelry, drunkenness, sexual pleasures. Let's take specifically the worship of Baal. Baal is mentioned multiple times in scripture, right? The worship of Baal. Baal is the Canaanite storm god. He's a god that brings rain to the people. And Baal worship was very common in the land. 
And the way Baal worship looked like it, what it kind of revolved around was this idea that the earth was mother. Right? It's very common for religions back then, in the ancient Near East, was this belief, we even have it often today, there's people who believe Mother Earth, right? And this idea of Earth as Mother exists because what comes out of Earth is life. So, knowing human biology, right? Women gives birth to life. So this idea of Mother being Earth, right? But they had this idea then of sky being Father. Baal being the sky father, being the storm god, is the one who's the sky father. Well, thinking about what they know of human biology then, their way of enticing and their way of getting rain revolved around certain practices. Let me explain a little more. This idea that if Baal brings forth the rain, Mother's Earth, how do you bring forth life out of the Earth? How do you, if you will, impregnate the Earth? Rain. What was the most important thing for the people in that time? It was water, it was rain. Water meant life. Water was everything. They're asking Baal then to bring forth his rain, to bring forth, if you will, his way of fertilizing the earth. And so what they would do is they would have these practices that revolved around how can we entice this storm god? How can we entice this god to bring forth his rain? Well, maybe certain practices that revolve around enticing him, if you will, with cult prostitution would be the way for him to bring forth this rain. Does that make sense so far? Are we with you guys? They practice sensual pleasures, sensual practices to entice the giver of rain. Now, if you're an Israelite and you're coming here into this land and you're hearing all about this Baal, all about this Canaanite God, that all the other people are worshiping in their way, and you're saying, well, Yahweh, God of Israel, my God is the giver of life. He's the giver of rain. As a matter of fact, that's what Genesis talks about. God is the provider of water, of life. He's the source of life and water. But you see all these other people practicing sensual activities, the temptations of the flesh, they were tempted. So they were tempted by Baal worship. Maybe it's true for them. Maybe it could be true for us. Maybe it's not a bad idea. That sounds like okay plan to me. That's what they thought. Maybe I'd rather do that than stay pure and holy and devoted to one God. A temptation that they faced was a temptation, a temptation of the flesh. And that's just one God, Baal worship. If you add Asherah, you had the story nights, often they were worshipped by drunken revelry, by parties, by excess. And so these are all indulging the pleasures, the temptations of the flesh. And so the way they were enticed was that these, temp- these worshipping of these practices, enticing them to bring forth life, revolved around sensual pleasures or physical fleshly delights that was offered to them. Second temptation, it's fear-based. The Israelite people, not just Israelite, but all Canaanite people, all the people in the region, they're desperate for water, like I said. Water is life. Life that they've been craving, it means everything to them. There's no water, there's no crops. Without crops, there's no livestock. If there's no livestock and crops, there's nothing. Everything was dependent on water. When the Bible says the land was flowing with milk and honey, right? you guys know what I'm talking about? Land flowing with milk and honey? What it literally meant was there was a lot of water. Because to have livestock, milk, you needed water. To have honey, you needed flourishing plant life and flowers and all that kind of stuff. Basically, it was the idea that where water is flourishing, milk and honey exists. Land flowing with milk and honey. So temptation out of fear, they said, well, we need water. Water is life. Water is everything. So let's cover our bases. Let's say, okay, um, I'm coming here. I see these people, and I, I know Yahweh provides water. I, I believe that, but, you know, I'm a little scared here because I really need water. And those people are saying Baal's the storm god. They're saying Baal provides water. Can, am I allowed to be like, God, I believe you, but let me just throw a little worship over here at Baal just in case. Do you know what I'm talking about? Let me make sure I'm covered because I need the water. Out of fear, out of fear of not having what they need, out of fear of not having excess, out of fear, they said, let me just do what it takes to make sure my fear is alleviated. God has never failed to provide for his people. But out of fear, they'll make decisions that they know they shouldn't make. They'll compromise in areas where they know they shouldn't compromise. Fear is a powerful motivator. 
It's the same that happened to Israelites when Israelites left Egypt and they were lost in the wilderness and they were fearful. They weren't sure what's going to happen. We're in a strange land. We're wandering. We don't know where food and water is going to come from. They're afraid. So they, go back, they want to go back to what's comfortable, what's familiar. They say, let's go back to Egypt and be slaves again. At least we know where food was coming from. We're like, what? God's provided so much. He rescued you. The, the, whole, the whole water thing happened. We go back to being slaves? They were afraid. They were afraid. Fear leads to temptation. Fear in and of itself, because let me hear me real quickly. Let me just say this. Having fear and anxiety in and of itself is not what's wrong. Do you hear me? Please hear me. It's how we respond to the fear. Fear is natural. If a lion is attacking you, you should be afraid. That fear should motivate you to fight or flight. Right? That's, that's reality. Fear is a good thing. It's like, ooh, I do something because of that fear. Doing nothing is, oh, I'm not afraid of a lion attacking me. You're like, ha ha. That's not good. Lion will eat you. It should motivate you to fear or flight. So fear, giving it... Fear is not the bad thing. It's what are you doing with that fear? Are you trying to cover your bases? Are you compromising? Are you not trusting in God with your fear? Are you not turning to him? Do you hear me? That's what the Israelite people were doing. That's what the kings were doing. What if Baal is powerful? What if Asherah is powerful? Can I cover all my bases? Can I worship God and them? I mean, isn't that kind of what it feels like Solomon did? Yes, he did that to appease his wives, but did he also kind of be like, well, I worship God, I made a temple for him, but can I also not make these temples too? Or these high places to worship in? Third temptation, the culture around them. The religion and the culture around them said, this is how we worship, this is what we do. The culture all around the Canaanites and all the tribes, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, everybody worshiped in a different way. And so who are we to say, to be different, should we just give in to what everybody else is doing? The Israelites were wondering, this is what everybody else does, why can't we be like them? Why do we have to be different? Why do we have to stand out? Why can't we worship the way they worship? And so the Israelites, Manasseh and all these other kings are saying, I want to be like these other kings. Mind you, this happened earlier, right, in the book of Judges? When the, book of the Israelite people said, well, I want to be like everybody else, God. How come they get a king? I want a king. Do you guys remember that part earlier? They literally say that. They say, I want to be like everybody else. I want a, a powerful king that I can look up to and be like, that's my king. That's what they wanted. They were giving in to the culture around them. And so that's what they're doing again. Manasseh is saying, well, why do we have to be different from all the other religions? Why do we have to eat the way we eat? Why do we have to sacrifice and wash the way we sacrifice and wash the way we wash? Why do we have to be different? Can we not just be like everybody else? And they're honestly, it's, 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 they're like us, aren't they? It's hard to be the one that's left out, that doesn't fit in with everybody else, the one that doesn't fit in with the culture around them. And so Manasseh and all these other kings, who, mind you guys, there are a lot of ruling tribes, nation states, empires. There's a lot of city states that exist during that time. Please don't think there's only like four tribes or four nations or one nation. There's a lot. This was, this was like the heart of civilization, and, but not very civilized, but the heart of civilization. This were warring states and nation states and city states and tribes and people groups were. And they saw everybody else looking different. They say, why can't we be like them? And so the kings like Manasseh and others that we read about did evil in the sight of God. And maybe now we can understand a little bit of why they did it. Because at first, if you were like me, you'd be like, what's wrong with these people? Why are you so stupid? How could you possibly do this? But now let's turn it back to ourselves. Maybe if we look at the reasons why, the temptations, let's turn it back around. What are we doing because of these same temptations? Let's look at our list and look at ourselves. The first one, the temptation of fleshly pleasures. What do we give into because we give into the pleasures and desires of the flesh, of revelry, drunkenness, and sexuality? What are you doing? How have we forsaken God? What temptations are you giving into because you indulge, because your flesh has tempted you to go away from God, your first love? What are you indulging in, in the secret places? What are you forsaking God for? Are you doing evil? 
About people, I know how tempting the sins of the flesh are. It isn't just sensual sins. It's anything that is speaking to the things of the flesh. Paul says in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the idea is this, God has made your body for something excellent and beautiful, but our sin and flesh warp our desires and we long for cheap and quick substitutes that we think will satiate us, but never does. Never does. We are made for deep intimacy, not cheap physical encounters. We are made for truly emotional love and care, not random passing feelings of closeness to someone due to substances. We are made for true celebration that comes from knowing who you are and the purpose you have, not from fake, cheap parties thrown on a whim to forget the sorrows of the day. Do you hear me? It's so often when we give in to the whims of fleshly pleasures, we give in to a cheap substitute to what God truly wants that is more lasting, more fulfilling than anything that we could ever imagine. Guys, you guys know how much I like Coke Zero, right? I'm just throwing that out there. You know this. It's a sin that I struggle with, I know. But one day, I was given a fake Coke Zero. I know. It was one of those off-brand ones that just are not, just not good. And because I was weak, because I wanted a Coke Zero, but it wasn't there, because I'm a sinner, I drank said drink. And I drank it, and it just did not satisfy. It wasn't the real thing. Ain't nothing like the real thing. (laughs) Now, this is not a Coke commercial. (laughs) It's to show you guys that there is the real thing is better. And when we give in to the sins and the desires of the flesh that long for the real thing, guys, can I tell you, my people, can I tell you, that often your lust, a physical desire, is there because the real thing is better, but you give in to the cheap substitute. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? God, can I tell you that oftentimes when we give in to uh, just pleasures of the flesh and hedonism and debauchery and all these pleasures that we exist just to forget our sorrows and hardships for the day, God, can I tell you that the real source of happiness, the real source of contentment is better when you're known and you're loved and you have purpose. It's so much better than random pointless living from party to party or living just for the weekend. It's better. We give in to the temptations and sin of the flesh, but there's something so much better. Second temptation, fear-based. What do you practice and what do you do because of fear? Where does fear sometimes make you go or turn to? Out of fear, out of your longing for security, do you build up a bank account higher and higher and put your trust that at least I have my money to save me? Do you hear me? Do you build up your bank account because you think, well, at least if I have that money, I have a nest egg, I have, I have a landing, I have a safety net. I don't trust God necessarily to protect me. So I got to make sure I have my money to protect me. Do you hear that? Maybe do you trust? When I think about fear, my people, I, I think about fear when I was younger. Guys, can I just be honest with you? I fear was something I didn't really know that much of. You know, I mean, I was scared of the usual things like, you know, clowns. But I'm just talking about like real fear. Didn't really know fear until I had kids. Am I right? Amen. Then I knew fear like I couldn't believe. I, when I had kids, the idea of something happening to my children, oh man, that, that would wreck me. Right? Now, out of that fear, I have a choice. I can let it overwhelm me. I can choose to take full control. I can bubble wrap everything. Right? I can make sure everything is bubble wrapped. They never leave my sight. I can become like the, an expert in martial arts and weapons, and I can become uh, really good at healing everything and surround them only, you know what I'm saying? Nobody else can talk to them. They're like, you know, I can do that. Take matters into my own hand and make myself God. Or I can trust God. Not easy. It's not easy. All your parents are like, oh, that's not easy. I know. I'll still, I still want to bubble wrap everything. My kid's like nine, I still want to bubble wrap everything. 
Guys, fear leads you to making compromises, making yourself God. Another example of how fear can move us is that often we look at our extreme political ideologies and polarization we have now. And I would venture to say a lot of that is built on fear. The media, the pundits, the politicians will often use fear to get support and to move the needle. Fear of your rights being taken away, fear of your way of life, fear of other people, fear of nations, fear of justice not existing, and so on. And we let fear drive us to extreme, to division and to hatred. Don't put your trust in man or politics. Do you trust God? Do you trust him? Fear leads us to compromise. Don't compromise. A God is worth our whole devotion. Third temptation, giving into the culture around you. Temptation in this regard is what we're giving into because the culture says it's so, the desire to fit in. And it's a tough question to narrow down when we think about what is that? What are the temptations of our culture of this day? And it would be different for different people because we all kind of, even though there's an overall culture, we all exist in our little individual circles or our little individual cultures that we live in. We make priorities, decisions, ideologies based on culture and people around us all the time. And I can list many gods of our age and of our culture, materialism, the American dream, chase of social media, fame, the god of self, etc. And there are many gods of our culture that we turn to to make us happy or to fit in with culture. But therein lies the problem. We were never meant to fit in with this world. God gave the Israelites a bunch of laws that were to separate them from the world around them to show that they were set apart people for him to be a blessing to the nations. They said, wash this way, don't eat that way. Don't do this on this day. These are laws that say you're a different people, you're set apart, you're not like everybody else, don't try to be like everybody else. Similarly, as, as Christians, we're set to live a life set apart that doesn't resemble the culture around us, that makes us stick out like sore thumbs. While others chase fame and power and money, we should chase justice and mercy and love and peace in the kingdom of God. When the God of this culture states that following your own heart and being true to yourself is the highest calling, we see that living for God and sacrificially for man is our highest calling. We don't look to politics or finances to save us, we look to a God who rescues. The temptation of culture and looking like the world around us is strong, but has always been the call of God for us to be a set-apart people, representatives of another kingdom. To show the ways of the other kingdom, let the people wish to be a part of that kingdom. Guys, I always see there's a waypoint church. Our body exists for two main reasons. Number one, we exist to be the coming attraction, the preview of the kingdom of God. What I mean by that is the way you love, the way you forgive, the way we live in peace and unity, the way we love and serve each other sacrificially, the way we live looks so different that people are like, wow, look at them, look at the way they live. That looks so different, but it looks so good. I wanna be a part of that. There's something in my heart that longs for that. Can I be a part of that? That's what we're called to do. We're supposed to stick out of this culture, not be like this culture. Can I just say one of the saddest truths in the world? Are you ready? Is I can't tell most Christians apart from non-Christians. Can I say that again? What was that? I heard something. That's right. Mm. Thank you. That's right. Out of the mouths of babes. I can't. It's hard. It's hard to tell most Christians apart from non-Christians. We should stick out. They should look at us and be like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you live like that? Why do you sacrifice like that? How do you forgive like that? How do you love like that? How do you fight for the oppressed like that? How do you fight for justice like that? How do you show grace like that? How do you show mercy like that? That's different. Why do you go to the hard places? Why do you keep on trying when everybody's told you no? My people, we are not to look like this culture. But we give in, don't we? Because we don't want to stick out. I grew up sticking out. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. When I was young, I moved down to Florida. 
I moved down to the panhandle of Florida. Southern Alabama is what they called it, right? Asian guy from Northeast, born in Philadelphia, moved down to Southern Alabama. I stuck out. I was a weirdo. I was the guy that, like, I went to the school. I kid you not, I might have been, me and one other person were, like, the only non, non-white people at the school. I stuck out. So I never wanted to stick out. Growing up, I didn't want to stick out. I wanted to do what everybody else, I wanted to be that guy that, says, that liked what everybody else liked, that wanted to do what everybody else wanted to do. I hated being the guy that stuck out. So I know what it is. I know what it means. I know what it is to want to give in to what everybody else wants to be like, to look like everybody else, to be like everybody else. I know what that feels like. But as believers of Jesus, our loyalty to him, our representation of him is worth so much more. Amen? And here's the thing. Here's the hope that we have. All these kings did what's evil in the eyes of God. And by far, by far the majority of Israelite people followed along. They committed evil. And we ourselves, we commit evil. But they had a promise. The author of Kings was always pointing to this promise. That a Messiah, a true and greater king was coming. They called the anointed one. Anointed as our king. And he's going to make all new and all right. The one who knew all the sins that we've committed, the evils that we've committed. Because of all these three temptations, the evils that we've committed. But then does all that it takes to forgive us of them. You see, our sin problem is our biggest problem. And our sin problem is that our flesh, our minds, our hearts are corrupted by sin. We have a sin issue. It's insidious and it's poisoned us and it separates us from God. But our true king comes. Our true king comes and pays the price and penalty and the way of our sin. And not only does he pay the price and the penalty of our sin, he also provides the means and the ways of our sin nature and this insidious poison that's come upon us to have an antidote. He's given us a new heart so that a heart no longer has to be tainted by the sin, but can be brand new and can be made to worship him. We know his name. We proclaim it in this place. His name is Jesus. He is the king and the Messiah that came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. He came and was the king that didn't succumb to the pleasures of the flesh, the king that did not give in to fear-based temptation, the king who does not fit into the culture. But he transcended all those things. He faced them. He conquered sin and death. And he purchased for himself a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's resurrected and lives today. So that we can have a true king that keeps us from falling into temptation and of the culture around us. We have a king that we can follow. A king who rules today. And we, as citizens of that kingdom, are his representative. And we get to live in such a manner that we stick out and people want to know what is that kingdom like. The story of First and Second Kings is a story that points to Jesus. And our forgiveness and our hope is found in him. And if you're here today and you don't know forgiveness like that, You don't know what it means to have a new heart that can be given onto you by Jesus himself. If if sin and the poison of sin has corrupted your heart, you don't know what to do with it. Can I tell you, what you do with it is you give it to the king who rescues it and gives you a new heart. And you know it might seem impossible and you might be sitting and you think I'm so far away from any possible way of this king reaching me. Can I tell you that he's done everything possible. He's more than powerful enough to chase after and reach after you. And today, today you can know him in such a way. And today you can have a new heart. He says, what if you believe and confess that your sins are forgiven? Relationship with him, fealty to the king is all it takes to be part of his kingdom. And he's paid the price for it. So the invitation is yours this morning as well. If you want to know this king, we invite you during our time of worship to go and speak to me, any of the prayer team members that are going to be around the room, and they'll love to talk to you and pray with you about how you can know this king, how you can be given a new heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness and the message you've given us, even through the, the evil kings. God, we know the temptation that is ever before us, 
But God, we know how much better, how much better it is to be in your will and led by your spirit. So spirit, will you move within us? Fight against the temptation. And let's live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. And at this time in our service, it's the third Sunday of the month. And the first Sunday and the third Sunday, we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper or communion here at Waypoint. And the first Sunday of the month, we practice uh, a more formal confession during the prayer time. But we believe there are multiple elements of the Lord's Supper, and, and uh, we're going to practice one of them today as we come together. And we join with our Christian brothers and sisters around the world right now, or, well, at some point, time changes, but today there would be Christians in, in the Gambia, Christians in Malaysia, Christians in, in China, Christians in Europe, Christians in South America, all practicing the same meal together in the same way because our Lord gave it to us. And uh, this is for followers of Jesus um, to come to the table and to share in this, this blessing that Jesus has given us. And um, I want us to focus on the new covenant we have in Jesus. The old covenant that God established through Moses um, was temporary because they couldn't fulfill it. The kings show that they just fail. But God makes a renewed covenant with David that he will bring this anointed one. And then he brings another covenant through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and promises a new covenant will come. And one day this kingdom will be made right. And Jesus comes and reinstalls this kingdom and gives us a new kingdom and a new hope. And we celebrate that this morning. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, like I said, this is for followers of Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we welcome you to come and, and take this. Uh, we practice something here at Waypoint. If the servers can come on up. We practice something here at Waypoint called intinction, where uh, we ask you to come forward and you will be handed a cracker and then you will be handed the juice. And when I mean, you dip it in the juice, you can eat it while you're walking to your seat or you can take it back to your seat and take a moment to reflect. There's no exact right way to do this, whatever's uh, more comfortable for you. If you feel like for health reasons or other reasons you, can, you don't want to come forward, uh, there are some stations in these two back corners that have uh, a regular option and then a gluten-free option. So these uh, are back there. And at this moment, I'm going to have you guys come up. So you guys, then this section will go there, this section here this section there. Let's participate in our Lord's Supper.
please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was shed and that we are raised to new life in you through your life, through your death, and through your resurrection. And that you right now are seated on the right, at the right hand of the Father, reigning. And you will come back to make all things right and new. But until that day comes, God, may we be your people, people of the new covenant, forgiven people, people with hope. And when we stumble and fall, may we not be like the kings of Israel, but may we be like David and Peter and the brothers and sisters who have gone before us who turned back to you. We thank you for a meal that shows us how to turn back to you and put our trust in you. We give this next few weeks to you. May you guide us and protect us until we come back again to your table. And we give you all the praise and all the glory. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.